And uh, we're going to continue studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. We'll read them together, and then we will dive in, dig into the Word of God, find out what He has for us, how He would have us walk away from this place different after hearing His Word. 1 Peter 3, verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Father, we pray that as we listen to what your word would have to say, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, change us, Lord, remove fear from our hearts and minds for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are you afraid of? What is it that keeps you up at night, or what sneaks into your mind at the least opportune times, the strangest times when you don't want to be afraid of anything? We've talked a little bit about it before, but our fears, many of our fears, most of our fears never happen. Um, two years ago, Penn State University did a study. They took some, uh, some people, they, they, for 10 days... They set an alarm four times a day. Those people were to think about the last couple of hours and what they had been afraid of, what had snuck into their minds and and given them some fear over the past couple of hours. And they did that for 10 days. And then uh, they had them at the end of 30 days, or every day for 30 days, keep track of how many of those fears actually came true. And of the fears that people had throughout the day, uh, 91.4% of them did not come true. 91, over 91% of the fears that people had did not come true. Um, it's amazing how much, we've talked about this before, how much we put ourselves through with fears that come into our minds, come into our hearts, and, and just make us fearful, make us afraid, and, and stop us from doing what we should be doing. So most of the things that we would be afraid of will never actually happen, but what if what you were afraid of actually did happen? What, what if it wasn't something that was never going to happen, but something real that, that you saw coming and that you were fearful of? How would you handle that fear? How would you manage what you were going through? Well, about 2,700 years ago, the southern kingdom of Judah was being warned by God's prophets that because of their sin, judgment was coming and it was going to be terrible because it was going to come at the hands of the Assyrians. Uh, it was the world's first great army, the Assyrians were. It was the world's first empire. And some believe it was the greatest empire until the time of Alexander the Great. But the way that they became so powerful was their army, specifically the cruelty and the fierceness of their army. They were known for making examples of cities and leaders that resisted them. And we won't get into the actual things that they did. This is a mixed group of people, and not everybody is so enthralled with all of the violence and the gore. Um, but in the words of one historian, their empire was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unadulterated terror. Uh, that's how they kept control. That's how they, they swept across great portions of land. 
And in light of that, you might understand a little bit more about Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. You might understand why he would be kind of saying, God, really? Are you sure you want me to go to them? I mean, they're, they're pretty terrible. So sometimes we have a, a tendency to pile on people in the Bible and not really understand the context, right? That might help us understand. Well, in Isaiah 8, God has just told Isaiah that the Assyrians are coming for his people, for God's people. They're going to come and they're going to conquer the northern kingdom. They're going to just completely wipe it out, exile all the people. And they're going to come to Judah in the south, where God's half, other half of God's people are. And they're going to wipe out a lot of the cities, but they're not going to be able to take Jerusalem. They're not going to take it even though they would besiege it. And in Isaiah 8, verse 12, God told Isaiah not to walk in the way of the people, don't live like this people, don't call conspiracy, everything they call conspiracy. And then he says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. And verse 13, God says to Isaiah, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And so the instruction from God to Isaiah for something real, something to be afraid of, the Assyrians, was that yes, the bad guys are coming, but don't fear them, honor the Lord as holy. And he would also say uh, to fear God, not the Assyrians. Well, as Peter writes now to those in modern-day Turkey, you might remember from our introduction that they were people that were experiencing some cultural rejection, some opposition um, from the culture, some pushback, but there wasn't any real persecution happening yet. Um, Christianity was relatively new. It was growing quickly. But Peter was, written, was writing to them, and the purpose, as you remember, maybe, was chapter 5, verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. Now, why would he need to write to them to stand firm in the true grace of God, but because more than cultural opposition was coming. There was some persecution coming. Legal persecution was going to come to them from the Roman government, but instead of living in fear, which would cause you to maybe abandon the faith, um, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm here. And we've seen in this letter how Peter has been so careful to give all of the credit, all of the glory to God for the salvation that Jesus has brought us. It's all been all about Jesus. And he's been careful to show us what living this faith looks like. It, it's different from the rest of the world. It's holiness in different areas. But now Peter's going to be, begin to bring home that, that, that acknowledgement, that recognition that persecution is coming. In chapter 1, verse 6, they'd been tested by various trials, and we've seen in the last three chapters there have been some references to slandering and reviling. Um, there's even been suffering and enduring in chapter 2. But from now through the rest of the letter, there's going to be some serious talk about suffering and persecution that's coming for God's people. And our passage this morning transitions into that reality, and the message is, do not fear. Don't fear what's coming. And when Peter wanted to think of words to get that, that across, he couldn't think of any better words than Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, where Isaiah, God again to Isaiah said, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Here in our passage in verse 14, Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. It's slightly different English translation, but using the same words in the original, um, the, the Greek translation from Hebrew, using the same words. Do not fear. Do not be in dread. That's the message for this paragraph. And everything points back to this not fearing as we live for God in, in holiness, as we live for righteousness' sake, because of persecution that's coming, don't fear. 
but how? (laughs) If you know that difficult times are coming, how can you not live in fear knowing how bad it could get? That's important for us because you can see the same trajectory in our culture that the people here in modern Turkey were seeing when Peter wrote this. So how do we avoid living in fear? Not fear of what will never happen, but fear of what looks like it's coming and and what may be coming sooner rather than later. And not only how do we avoid fear, I mean, that's bad enough feeling fearful. That's That's a terrible feeling, right? I mean, being afraid is bad enough. But what our flesh does with fear is it, it gives us the reason to stop obeying the Lord, right? Well, I'm, I can't do that because I'm afraid that fill in the blank, right? I, I can't go to church because I'm afraid this. I, I can't go visit someone in the hospital because I'm afraid that. I, I, you know, we live in fear and we use the fear as a reason not to obey what the Lord says for us to do, including living in holiness. And so this whole passage is encouragement to us not to fear during persecution or suffering for righteousness from reviling and slander all the way up to the end of suffering where our life is taken from us. So how do we do that? How can we prepare for what's coming without being fearful? Well, Peter gives us five reasons we should not fear suffering for righteousness in what's coming for the people of modern Turkey and uh, when he wrote this 2,000 years ago. And it's just as applicable to us this morning. So let's begin. Number one, how can I have no fear? Have no fear of suffering for righteousness because you are zealous for righteousness. Verse 13, because you're zealous for it. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Who in their right mind would try to harm you for being a good person? <laughs> right? That, that's kind of the argument Peter makes here in verse 13. We're going to use doing good and righteousness interchangeably because Peter does that here. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So um, using these synonyms, righteousness and doing good and holiness, these are all the same, uh, different ways of saying the same thing. But who would do that, right? I mean, if you were zealous for other things, you might expect that uh, people might not like it. Um, they might come after you. They may try to harm you. Like, if you, were, if you were zealous to overthrow the government, you would expect that people, probably the government, wouldn't like that very much, right? So they would probably try to stop you and, and even go so far as to harm you, to stop you from doing that. But for goodness, zealous for goodness, for righteousness, who, who is there to harm us for that? Simon, not Simon Peter, but the other Simon apostle, Simon the zealot, was named the Zealot because he was part of a group called the Zealots. And the Zealots were um, really terrorists in, in the first century. They were trying to overthrow the government, uh, the Roman government. They wanted to get rid of Rome, and they were willing to give up anything, do anything, even to give their own lives. They were willing to kill other people to get the Romans out. So again, if you were zealous for that, you would expect some persecution, maybe some harm to come upon you. But if we had that kind of zeal for righteousness... For doing what's good and right, who would ever try to harm us? Well, that same word zealot is the word that's used here. This kind of zealousness towards righteousness, to to give up anything, to do anything, whatever it took to be righteous for God. In fact, Titus 2.14 says that Jesus redeemed us and purified us to himself so that we would be a people zealous for good works. It's part of the reason Jesus saved us. It's a main reason Jesus saved us. 
So that doesn't mean that um, in our zealousness for righteousness that we're going to be willing to kill anybody, right? <laughs> that would cease to be righteousness. We're not going to persecute it that far. But what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to give up for righteousness, for holiness, for doing what is good? Are we willing to give up anything? Are we willing to sacrifice some of our comfort, some of our time, any of our entertainment? If, if we're known for being zealous for righteousness, generally people are not going to come after us. We, we don't need to fear while being zealous for righteousness because we're doing what's good. And most of the time people will leave us alone when we do that. That should be a helpful motivator for us, right? I mean, if we want to avoid fear, be zealous for what pleases God, righteousness, holiness, a stay in God's will. You remember Daniel in the Old Testament and, and how zealous he was for goodness, how, how careful he was to obey the Lord in, in every way that he could. And Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of, of Babylon, the Babylonians, he took Daniel and set him up as a high official in his government because Daniel was zealous for good. And he, was, he continued in that zealousness for good. So even when an invading nation, the Medes and the Persians, came in and wiped out the Babylonians, they also kept him a high official in their government. It's amazing. That's how appealing it is to people because God has implanted within each person a desire for order and for good and for righteousness, even when they try to reject that. But when they see it in us, generally it's true that they're going to not try to harm us, right? Okay, so that's the first reason that we should not be fearful of suffering for righteousness because we're, we're zealous for righteousness and most of the time that will keep us from harm, but not always, right? Not always. So number two, we're not going to have fear for suffering for righteousness because you are blessed for suffering for righteousness. Verse 14, you're blessed for it. Now Peter says in verse 14, but even if you should, because it's not outside the realm of possibility in this fallen world that we're going to suffer for doing good, for being zealous for righteousness, but even though you should rightly expect to be safe, it's going to happen where people may come after you, right? It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Being zealous for righteousness is not just going to ensure our safety all the time. So even if it does happen, Peter says, you are blessed for it. Now, the ESV says you will be blessed, but the tense in the original is there is no tense. It's just an adjective, blessed. <laughs> you're, you're blessed. And so don't be put off by the you will be blessed part of that you are blessed for suffering for righteousness. You know, isn't that, isn't that what we've already learned in 1 Peter? I mean, it's a gracious thing to God, chapter 2, verse 19, when we suffer for doing good, when we endure, and we keep doing good for His glory, right? That glorifies Him, that pleases Him to see that happening. Not that we're suffering, but that we endure for His sake, His namesake. We looked at Psalm 34. We glanced at the verses that Peter quotes here last week. The reason was because we're blessed, and the blessing that we have now and in the future is God's very presence, His very presence with us. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. We have the Lord Himself as a blessing when we're suffering for righteousness. Isn't that a great blessing? The almighty, eternal God is for you when you're living out His calling. It's an amazing blessing. And so we don't fear those who might want to harm us 
for zealousness for righteousness because the God of the universe is with us. We have the blessing of His presence, the blessing of His attention on us. And here's how David puts it in Psalm 56. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So David's saying, you know, he's not sugarcoating anything, right? He's not hiding it. He's not saying, you know, everything's great in the Lord. I just have a, such a wonderful life, right? He says, people are really doing these things. Dealing with those realities of, of people persecuting you, the way to handle the fear is not to just ignore it or to sugarcoat it, right? To say what's happening. But here's what he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Right? When God is on our side, there may be some harm that comes to us physically, but what, what ultimate harm can flesh do to me? Take our life? I mean, that's the worst that they could do. They could, they could do all kinds of harm to us, up to and including taking our life, but all that does is bring us home faster, doesn't it? That brings us even more of a blessing because the blessing of God's presence is true now, but it's even more true when He takes away our sin and all of our weaknesses and we get to be with Him forever. And that was Jesus' point in Luke 12. You remember that He had warned His disciples, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the false teachings of the Pharisees. They had all, all power. They had all the power. They could kick people out of the synagogue. They could persecute them. They could even kill people uh, for heresy, right? But Jesus says, don't fear them. I tell you, my friends, and when I read that this week, I got to tell you, brother and sister, that just struck me. I stopped in my tracks that Jesus would call normal people my friends. Sometimes we have to stop. We have to just get hit by something and just go, wow. It's amazing that I could be a friend of God, a friend of Jesus. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. That's all they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, right? Fear the Lord. Fear God, not man. And then he continues with the blessedness of being in fellowship in relationship with the Lord. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. <laughs> Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. God sees every little sparrow out there that's flying around and every one of them that drops and every one that flies and every one that does whatever God knows and he cares about them, but he cares even more for you. He's got the very hairs of your head numbered. But why does he care? Because he decided to. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything or say anything to make God love us that much and care for us that much. So that means we can't do anything or say anything that will make him take it away from us. He cares for us. What shall we say to these things, Paul asks in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us, Right? There's nothing anywhere that could ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's how he ends out that chapter, right? <laughs> this is the blessing of suffering in righteousness. You have John 15, 18 to 22 in your notes, and we're not going to turn there, but it's there for you to study, to find out more about how the world hated Jesus. It's going to hate us, but he has overcome the world. So suffering for righteousness is unlikely. It probably won't happen. 
but it could. It, it, and it may, right? It, it may be coming here even sooner rather than later. We have a culture that is increasingly turning against us. We have not yet really experienced persecution here in America for our faith, but it could happen. But we don't fear that because if we're living for His sake, if we're living in righteousness, people will most of the time leave us alone. And if they don't, we have nothing to fear because we have the blessing of God Himself with us. You know, Jesus taught us the same thing in Matthew 5.10, right? In the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a true happiness, a true blessing from God when we're suffering for righteousness' sake. You know, Jesus said this was going to happen, right? Uh, Peter says it's going to happen. Paul says it's going to happen. John's, James. I mean, the New Testament says this is going to happen. If we're part of God's people, we're going to suffer for righteousness, right? We're going, to, we're going to be persecuted. So that means if we're persecuted, why would we ever get down about that? That means we're part of His people, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that, should be, that should be encouraging to us. I know it's not going to just make us smile and jump for joy every time someone um, is reviling or slandering us, but it should bring us a, a, a rejoicing, a blessedness. It's a good thing. That means that Jesus was right. <laughs> We're part of God's family, and He's glorified by that. So don't fear the possibility or the probability of suffering coming for Jesus and for righteousness. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Troubled is the picture of, you know, kids like to do. They like to take a big rock and drop it into the water, and it doesn't just mess with the water that it falls into. It sends this ripple across the whole pond that was serene, Right? That's the word troubled here. Don't get agitated. Don't get all worked up about it. It's going to come, but don't be affected by it. Um, that was the picture of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember them as, as they did not bow down to that, that, uh, that golden statue? They worshiped God only. They were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. What did, what did they say? How did they act? Did they get scared? And, well, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're going to burn up and die. No, they said, we have no need to answer you in this matter, O king. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, king, we will not worship your gods, right? They said, you know, our God is able to save us from this fiery furnace, and we don't know if he's going to. Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your gods. That was, the, that was the peace they had. That was the lack of fear and the complete confidence and trust in God, even during a literal fiery furnace. <laughs> the disciples had the same truth, the same confidence. Remember when even Peter, Peter was um, suffering for the Lord's sake in, in Acts 5.41. They were beaten for preaching in Jesus. They left the presence of the council, Acts 5.41 says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is great. <laughs> what a blessing. This is that we're counted worthy. This is a blessing from God to suffer for the name of our Lord, for living out His will of holiness and of righteousness. And it's a blessing now and in the future. And you have verses from uh, Revelation Chapters 2 and 3, and you can read more of the blessings that are coming. So, so rather than living in fear, 
We live in a peace because of God's will, because we're living out God's will, living for righteousness, living for holiness, and we, we know that most of the time people are going to leave us alone, but even when they don't, we're blessed by God. But there's a third reason that we should not fear suffering for righteousness. It's in verse 15, number three, have no fear for suffering for righteousness because you replace fear with Jesus. You replace fear with Jesus. As we've been learning, God always has something better than we have for ourselves. He's always got something better for us. When we might be in in fear of others, God says, here's Jesus instead. Now, that sounds neat, right? That sounds church-like. That sounds holy. That sounds cool. But what does that actually look like, right? I mean, how do I replace fear with Jesus? Um, Here, Peter is using another verse from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. God says to Isaiah, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Peter says, we're going to honor Christ the Lord as holy. We're going to set him apart in our heart. Now, the word honor isn't present in the original. It's it's not there in the original. Obviously, we would never say don't honor the Lord in in every way. Um, But if we want to understand the prescription for replacing fear with Jesus, we want to make sure we get the the understanding right. What is this prescription? How do we do this? The word for holy, uh, for honor as holy, is just the word holy. It means to set apart, to make distinct, right? To make other In this form, it means to recognize as holy. He's not saying make Jesus holy because he already is, as we've sung this morning. He's already holy in his nature and essence. But in your heart, make him known as holy. Recognize him as set apart. In every way, he is set apart. And that's why the translators of the ESV added that word honor. Recognize him. Treat Jesus as holy in your heart. It's the same phrasing that Jesus used when he taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, 9, how many of us have ever re- have recited that, that prayer, O Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and we don't even know what that means. That's the word here. That's what it means to recognize as holy. What we're saying to God in, in what we call the Lord's Prayer is, may your name be made known as holy. May people recognize you and acknowledge you, God, as holy. Let it be known everywhere. But Peter says, let it be known first in my heart. Set Jesus apart in my heart as holy. But in your heart as you recognize Jesus as holy, there are two aspects, two qualities specifically that we're to focus on in Jesus, in His holiness. It's as Christ, and it's as Lord. As Christ, as the anointed one, Jesus saved us. He is our holy Savior, the one who saved us, our Messiah, You know, we find ourselves saying that a lot. We hear that in church, and we hear other people talking about that, but how often do we think about what that really means, that Jesus saved us, that He is holy in His Messiah, His Christ, the the, the quality of being the Savior? Think about, Jesus did the impossible, didn't He? When He saved you, when He saved me, we are full of sin, we're born that way, that's how we come out. We stay that way and we'd never change. The leopard can't change his spots any more than we could change our sinfulness. We're destined to suffer the effects of sin forever, living under the power of sin in the presence of sin and one day under the penalty of sin forever. There was nothing that we could do 
But then God, through Jesus, saved us from the power of the presence and the penalty of sin forever. Jesus took our place. He purchased us for himself. He saved us. He did what we could never do, right? It was was impossible for us to do that. He's our Christ. He's our anointed Savior. And we know that. Intellectually, we we have a a sense of that. But maybe when we start to look around us, sometimes we we start to feel a fear mounting up and, and we know what could be coming and what might happen and we get a little fearful and, you know, maybe we start questioning, I can't handle that. Can Jesus handle that? Can Jesus handle what's going to happen? You know, things are too big for me to handle. I I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what's going to happen. But if we would meditate on Jesus, set him aside in our heart as Christ, who did the impossible, what I could never do, what could be impossible for Jesus to do? do? Do I, am I afraid that he might not be able to get me through? I've trusted him for my eternity. How can I not trust him for what's temporary? We find ourselves falling into that trap. We can can find ourselves falling into fear rather than trust in Jesus who did the impossible. Let's not take that lightly. Let's not just dismiss this stuff about Jesus being Christ, about Jesus being our Messiah. Let's not take it so lightly. Let's not put it aside in our, in our church mind, our little box in our mind for church, and then set it aside and move on with life and get scared of things happening and, and become fearful of things with, when Christ doesn't matter in those boxes. He matters in all of our boxes, in all of our mind. But it's not just as Christ. It's also as we set Him apart in our heart and in our mind as Lord. Now, again, Lord is one of those church terms. You don't use that all the time, you know, when you're at work, when you're at the grocery store. But when we say Jesus is Lord, it means He is the supreme one. He is the sovereign one. He is the the overall ruler of everything. He made everything. He keeps everything by the voice of His power. (laughs) He is an amazingly all-powerful God. And, And He doesn't just allow things. He causes things to happen. This Jesus who is Lord, He brings everything into our life, what's coming, He prepares it to use it for His purposes in our life. And that's pretty difficult for some of us to come to terms with, (laughs) that that God brings everything. He doesn't just allow things, but He brings things in. And there are two things to keep in mind, though, as we consider that about Jesus as Lord. First, He's not the author or originator of sin. So what's sinful does not come from the Lord, the sovereign one. But he even uses sin in our life for his purposes. He used Rahab's lie in Joshua 2. He, he used the false prophets of Israel in 1 Kings 22. He, he uses even sin, even though he doesn't cause it, he uses sin for his purposes. So he's not the author of sin, even though he's sovereign in every way. But number two, he uses everything for our good and for his glory. And I know that that's not news to most of you in here, right? But he uses everything for our good and his glory. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, some of the things that happen work out for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works some of the things according to the counsel of his will. 
who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Well, what about when this happened? Yep. What about when that didn't happen? Yep. That was according, those were all the things that happened according to the counsel of His will. That's who this Lord Jesus is. When we recognize Him, set Him apart in our mind as the Lord who rules, who reigns over everything, we would be able to trust in Him rather than fearing what's happening. This is what we mean by preach Jesus to yourself (laughs) throughout the week. Preach Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. This is how we replace fear with Jesus. We get rid of what we're afraid of in our minds. We don't set that apart as the sovereign one. We don't set apart what we fear as the Savior of us or, or the lack of Savior. We set apart Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, in our minds and in our hearts, and that replaces fear. You know, some people think, well, to replace fear with Jesus, I have to say his name three times in a row, right? Yeah, I use his name like a chant. Or, or I conjure up a picture of Jesus, right? I, I try to picture who he is. And by the way, any, sign, any picture that we've seen of him is, is most likely not accurate of what he looked like, most likely. We don't try to do any of those, those mystical things. We do what the Word tells us to do. We, we replace who Jesus is, the set-apart Christ, the set-apart Lord, the Holy One, in our minds. He's the impossible Savior and the immeasurable power. We set him up in our mind and heart and all his power is good, and that replaces it, drives out all fear. So learn that. Know that, brother and sister. Let that sink into your heart. Where does fear reside? It's in our heart, right? I mean, I know this is probably not going to happen, but I'm still afraid of it because it's in my heart. So replace the fear in your heart with the Lord. That was the difference for Jairus. Remember in Mark 5 when he came to Jesus? His daughter had just died. The people said, just leave Jesus alone. Forget it. She's already dead. There's nothing more he can do. What did Jesus say? Do not fear, only believe. Truly believe in your mind and in your heart. That's what it looks like to separate him, to to recognize him as Lord, as Christ, and not to fear what could happen, what might happen, what is happening. There'll be no room for fear. 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. Who is God but love? Jesus is love. Psalm 23.4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is with us. We, we don't have any reason to fear. We have the Lord, the Christ. There's a fourth reason that we can not fear what's coming, what could be coming, what may be coming, suffering for righteousness. There's no fear because, number four, you are always prepared to make a defense. You have hope within you, and you're always prepared to make a defense for your hope. That's verses 15 and 16. Now, these verses are considered the classic verses on apologetics, right? Apologetics is that branch of studying God and studying our faith in Jesus that it sets out a defense against objections that arise against our faith, right? That's what apologetics is. It's an important ministry. Uh, This word defense is the word apologia. That's where we get the word apology from. But we don't mean, I'm sorry for what I believe. We're not apologizing for it. We're giving a defense. It's a legal term. There's the prosecution and there's the apologia. There's the defense, the apology. Uh, the, the defense against us. 
uh, or de defense for us. But here's the difference. We're not defending ourselves to say, no, 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 we're not guilty, we're not guilty. The charge is, you have hope, and we have no idea why, and our, our plea is we're guilty. <laughs> but here's the defense. Here's the reason for it. Despite anything and everything that's happening around us, despite what could happen, what might happen to me, what might happen to you, we have a hope, and we can give a defense for that. We have a reason for that that nobody can take away. Where does it come from? Where does that hope come from? Everything's against you. How, do you. how do you live like that? What would be your answer if somebody asked you for that? What would you say? Now, of course, the first question might be, would anybody ask me that question, right? Would anybody ask you that question, Christian? Do, do people see within you a hope that overcomes all kinds of obstacles, any kind of trials, things that are coming against you, even being persecuted because you're a Christian? Does that get you down? Does that kind of just weigh heavy on you and, and there's no hope? There's nothing. What, would anybody ask us? Do they only see negativity? Do they only hear from you what's wrong all the time? You know, again, we don't ignore or pretend things are, are just rosy and peachy all the time. But even when things are bad, do we have a hope that people say, well, how, how's that possible? How do you have that within you? Now, I want us to consider that the question may not sound that way. You may not have somebody come up and say, excuse me, would you please give me an apologia for the reason, for the hope that you have within you? <laughs> I mean, if somebody did, praise God. Like, hey, that's great. But it's probably not going to look like that. Oftentimes, the question might be something like, man, how do you do it? How do you get through this crazy world, right? I mean, you're sitting there in a, in a waiting room somewhere, and the news is on, and something else crazy is happening. The guy next to you looks over and just says, man, how do you get through this stuff? That may be the question that comes across. That may be the way that, is, that the question is asked. It may not even be general. It may be more pointed as you're living in holiness for your Lord and for His namesake. People may look at you and say, hey, how come I never hear a curse word come out of your mouth? Are you a moral person? They may ask, how come you work so hard even when the boss isn't looking? What motivates you? What drives you, right? It, it may not sound like give me a reason for the hope that's in you, you know, why do you look away from those parts of the movie that show up on the screen? That's the first question, you know, uh, what's different about you? What, what, what gives you a living hope? If we have that hope, we're continually honoring the Christ as Lord, we're, we're living that out, it should be evident to other people. So then if we hear that question or if we hear those statements, well, how do we answer that? What do we say? Could you give a reason for the hope that's within you? Well, that's why we have this word prepared as the blank in our notes. It's prepared to call out the importance of being ready to answer that question. Now, some of you are thinking, well, hold on a minute. And Jesus, Jesus in Mark 13 told his disciples, don't be ready. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the answer at the time. You don't have to, you don't have to be ready. But when we look at the context of Mark 13... Andrew, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were with Jesus, and they asked him privately, what's going to happen at the end? And Jesus is answering their question privately to them. The same Holy Spirit here in 1 Peter is telling us to be prepared, right? Those apostles were going to have the Holy Spirit working through them, speaking through them directly. For us, we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. What we're trying to do is make what's true in our heart 
come up into our mind so that it can come out of our mouth so that it can go into the other person's mind so it can go down into their heart. (laughs) That's a lot to do, right? So he says we need to be ready to do that. That's the goal, to get to their heart. We don't want to just give them information. We need to be able to get into their heart so that they can grasp it and receive it and believe it from their heart. Now, we can't control what anybody does with the information, but we need to be able to give something from our heart, through our mind, out our mouth, into their mind that can sink down into their heart. So how do we do that? This is our defense, our apologia. By the way, when we think about this, don't think about those big names, those big name apologists out there. Don't think of, I mean, praise God for them, praise God for their ministries, but this isn't talking about those guys. This is talking about you. This is talking about you and me. We need to always be ready for this defense. What does it look like? Well, there, there are five parts that Peter gives to us for our defense, how we need to be prepared always to answer those questions. A, first one, is it, it needs to have reason. It needs to, it needs to have reason. It needs to, have a, it needs to be reasonable. We're not talking about reason in the sense of that secular, humanistic reason that denies God, but, but reasonable, logical thought. But brother and sister, the good news is that our faith does make sense. It is logical and reasonable. It follows, it fits. There's, there are no inconsistencies or non sequiturs. It's solid truth. It follows, it fits, it works together. It, it's a whole worldview that we enter into in Jesus. We've said it before, we don't check our brains at the door. I mean, you know, if, if this stuff didn't make any sense, it's not going to penetrate into our mind and, and down into our heart. It's not going to matter to us, right? And it shouldn't. But our faith is, is reasonable. It reaches our mind. It has to start there before it goes into our heart. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus gave the disciples the ability in their mind to understand the truths of the Old Testament and how they applied to him. And remember, that was Luke's whole reason for writing that gospel in Luke 1, to set out an orderly account so that you would have certainty considering the things you've been taught about Jesus. This faith that we have is reasonable. It's logical. So any answer that we give should be reasonable. It should make sense, right? But it can't only be reasonable. Secondly, B, it needs to have hope. (laughs) Our answer to people needs to have hope. What good is all the information about Jesus if it doesn't explain the reason for the hope that we have. Remember the beginning of this letter? That's what Peter said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our answer needs to have hope. (laughs) You know, we are born again to that living hope. We're not born again to drudgery. We're not born again to fear. In fact, 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, did He? But of power and love and a sound mind. So that means fear doesn't come from God, does it? Fear comes from somewhere else. Remember, there was a reason they were asking in the first place. You know, what's up? What's up with you? How come you're different? How come you talk different? How come you act different? Even if they didn't know what they were asking, this is what they're after. You know, they may think that they're trying to, they're after some pearl of worldly wisdom. They may think they're going to get some advice, but we're ready with the defense of the hope that we have with some really bad news that they're sinful and going to hell unless they repent and believe in Jesus. 
like us. <laughs> that, that we are under God's wrath because of our sin, except Jesus. So we have real hope forever in the bad news and the good news of Jesus, our Christ, our Lord. So any answer we give must have reason. Any answer we give must have hope. See, third, it must have gentleness. Right? That's what he says verse, at the end of verse 15. Gentleness, that's a lack of harshness. It's a meekness, but not a weakness. The truth that we have brings, brings hope, and it brings immense, immense power. <laughs> Remember, Jesus did the impossible. It gives us hope. It gives us vitality. It gives us joy. But we have to be able to funnel that energy and joy into a coherent message that doesn't drive people away because of harshness. Even in our excitement, I, we had some LDS uh, men come to our door the other night, and, and I said, this is great, guys. I'm glad you're here, but you need to be, <laughs> you need to be aware that sometimes I get really excited about this, and, and it, my, my, my voice might start getting raised, but it's because I'm excited. This is good stuff that I want to tell you about. <laughs> they came to our door thinking they wanted to tell us something, but I had a better message <laughs> of truth from the Lord. But we can't be harsh with it, can we? You can't be harsh with it and beat people and get mad at them for not believing, beat them over the head with it. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We're taught in 2 Timothy 2, 25, the Lord's servant must be gentle. Why? When he's correcting his opponents, he must be gentle because God may perhaps grant them repentance that leads to life. But that's not going to happen if they're just running away from you because you're being mean in your speech. You're being harsh. R.C. Sproul tells a story, told a story one time about he was, he was talking with somebody and he was winning the argument, but the guy said, okay, I believe that you believe that, but you're a big bully. He said he was convicted at that moment. I, I wasn't being gentle in that. So our, you know, our good news, our gospel is very offensive to the flesh. We need to make sure that our speech is not also offensive. So don't make it more offensive. Uh, there's a fourth respect D is respect. We, our answer needs to have some respect in it. We're told as part of our holiness to God to respect everyone in chapter 2, verse 17. The word in the ESV is honor, but it's the same word here. It, it's, a, it's a fear, not afraid of them, but a healthy respect and awe that God made this person. And we recognize that if not for God's grace, I would be in his position. I would be just like her, doubting God, not knowing God, Asking somebody else, why do you have hope? But it's God's grace that, that allowed me to have hope, and so I, I have a, a, a respect, a fear, and honor for another person. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? We're not fighting against the person that's trying to question us for why we have hope. All that we have has been given to us, not earned. It's only by God's grace. So, finally, E the last part that our answer needs to have, that needs to, to be full of, is a good conscience. So in verse 16, having a good conscience. We have to be sure that we're not covering or hiding any sin. You know, what we're telling them is how our sin is dealt with. And if we're just trying to cover it up or excuse it or ignore it, it undermines our message, what we're trying to say. That was a key part of Paul's defense for the faith in Acts 24. Remember, he was standing before Felix, he said, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, Paul said, which these men themselves accept, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains, Paul said, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. We just won't have a very good solid defense for our faith if we're covering up sin, if we live in consistent sin, if we just excuse it in ourselves. And when we live this way, verse 16 says, those who would revile you, those who would accuse you will be put to shame. Now, that's not what we're after, is it? We don't want people to to be seen that are in shame. What we're after was chapter 2, verse 12, where we keep our conduct honorable so that when God visits them with the gospel, they believe, they repent and believe. That's what we're after. But often what will happen is they will reject. So our defense needs to be reasonable. It needs to be hopeful. It needs to be gentle and respectful, and it needs to be conscionable. That's a lot to consider. But again, that's why he tells us, be prepared. Be always prepared. You know, it wouldn't be ridiculous of us to have a defense, to have a defense ready, to memorize a defense, to have it ready for anybody who asks us. You know, that's what theology is. That's what doctrinal statements are. Here's what we believe. That's what it's supposed to be. Here's what we believe and here's why. And if somebody asks, I can give them this well-thought-out truth in a way that's well lived out first. Before we finish, notice one more thing here. Peter says, give this defense to anyone who asks. Now, again, what we usually think of is that apologist who's standing there debating somebody at a university or, you know, somebody that's out there going door to door trying to witness for the real Christ to people. But this is for all of us in our everyday life. This could even apply, brother and sister, to being here this morning when somebody asks you, man, I'm going through a hard time. What helps you? What helps you to get through the hard times? This could not, it doesn't have to be somebody outside these doors. It could be somebody sitting next to you asking you, a brother or sister asking. Be ready whenever anybody asks you. This can be yourself crying out, like, why should I have hope? Why should I have hope? Why should I not fear what's coming, what might happen, what could happen? What... <laughs> this can apply for any kind of fear or if anybody asks us. We can give a reason for the hope that is within us to one another. We can give a reason for the hope that was within us to ourselves. We're doing this together. You know, all of these, all of these pronouns in here are plural. It doesn't come across in English. But they're all plural. It's all for all of us together. Finally, number five. Why should I not fear when there is suffering coming because of living for righteousness? Have no fear because you remember your blessing. That's verse 17. Peter essentially repeats what he said in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, verse 17 here, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And it's just a reminder of chapter 2, 2 verse 20. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God when we're enduring as we're suffering. We're enduring the same lesson given as a reminder for us. It's infinitely better. It's unfathomably better to suffer living for God's sake, for righteousness in Him, than to do evil. It's a blessing and it's pleasing to God when we trust Him, when we obey Him in love and worship. Psalm 118 8 and 9 says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. 
we trust in Him, we remind ourselves, we remind one another of the blessing that we have being in the Lord, even when we're suffering. So our application, what do we take from this? How do we, how do we apply these, these five truths, these five ways of not fearing suffering and righteousness? How do we do this? First, in our application, we settle in your mind and heart who Jesus is. Settle in your mind and your heart right now. Don't wait until this starts happening. It's a terrible time to try to dive into the Scriptures and dive into the, the, the theological books and, and get straight in your mind who Jesus is. If you don't know, it, it, now is the time to do it. And then when it happens, and then when the troubles come, the trials come, the persecution comes, then you dive into the Scriptures and you don't have to wonder and, and search and you know. You've already settled in your mind who Christ is, and you find Him again in the Scriptures, and you're reminded rather than trying to figure it out as it's happening. Settle in your mind and your heart who Jesus is now. Next, continually discover more of Him. Discover more of this Savior, this Lord, this Holy One. Learn who He is. Listen, that pushes out fear. To to get Christ in my mind and in my heart pushes out all fear. There's a throne in my heart, and there, there, there can only be room for one person on that throne. Don't let it be fear. Don't let it be some idol in this world. Let it be Christ. Discover more of Him. It pushes out that fear. And then next, remind yourself always. Remind yourself of that. Get that defense memorized. Get it sunk down deep into your heart. And when fear comes to try to take control of your heart, you you keep it out, you push it out because you're reminding yourself always of the Christ, the Lord. And finally, of course, share with others often. Share with others often. Battling fear is something that we do together. That's why He gives us one another. Share with others often what's been helping you to get through, what's been helping you to overcome. You know, if we're fearful, battling that fear has nothing to do with fear. It's got everything to do with our Lord. So if you're, if you're feeling fearful, if fear is starting to creep in, don't try to fight fear. Just get to know your Lord. Submit to Him. Grow in your knowledge of Him, with Him, with other believers. That will keep us from being fearful. Father, we praise You, Lord, and we thank You for Jesus. God, we thank You that He is the Holy Lord Christ, God, that He is the all-powerful one. He is the one who saved us. He did for us what we could never do on our own. God, He is the one who holds everything by the power of His voice. God, we take for granted sometimes who this person is, our Savior, our Lord. God, I pray that You would help us to remember that You would teach us more of Him and God, that we would not just look at this as, as new things to memorize, Lord, and new facts to know, but God, that this would be truth that comes into our mind and, and penetrates into our hearts, God, that this would change us from within, Lord. We would not be afraid of anything in this world. God, what can flesh do to us? You have saved us. Lord, you preserve us. And Lord, even when things happen to us physically, God, we know that ultimately and eternally we will always belong to you. And God, you're going to bring us home one day. Father, I pray that that hope would influence every part of our life. God, our speech, 
our actions. Lord, so much of the world is unafraid to tell us of what they believe. The world is so unashamed of of sin and of unrighteousness, God, and of the things that turn away from you. God, I pray that we would be even more convinced of your truth, of Jesus Christ, Lord. That when we speak, that, that people would not be able to help it, but to say, what's different about you? Lord, I pray that this would always be for your glory, that, that our defense that we give to people for the hope that we have would all be for your glory, for your praise, for your honor. Lord, I pray that that would be true of each one of us. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know that hope, Father, that they would come to speak to a pastor, speak to the person in their robe, Lord, and, and guide us, Lord, into the truth of who Jesus is for hope, for peace, for joy, God, and ultimately, again, as always, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.